Each year, 750,000 people will develop sepsis, and more than 210,000 of them will die. Can you identify who will benefit most from early intervention? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Peter W., Professor of Medicine for Pulmonary and Critical Care at Louisiana State University Health Science Center and a Professor of Surgery at Tulane University. Today we're discussing surviving sepsis, improving mortality with early diagnosis and treatment. Welcome, Dr. W. Well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me on. So first of all, why don't you define for us what you mean by sepsis so that we're all talking the same language here? Sure. I think that's important to understand that sepsis is considered really a systemic inflammatory response that the body has due to an offending infectious agent or cause. Uh, would you like to explain that a little more? Because there's, there's different types and different causes of sepsis, right? Absolutely. So the, the way that we look at it is first a compilation of vital sign abnormalities, so either temperature abnormalities, either very high temperatures, fever, or very low temperatures, likewise an elevated pulse rate, and then also an elevated respiratory rate. If we combine this with an abnormality in your white blood cell count, which is the count that helps us determine whether or not you're fighting off infection or not, if you have abnormalities in white blood cell count, either very high counts or very low counts, that qualifies you as well. Now, there are lots of different disease processes that can give you mimickers or things that look like sepsis, but when we think that it's due to an infection and it's those associated symptoms and abnormalities of either vital signs or white blood cell count that we then determine it as sepsis. And once you're determined as sepsis, then it's broken down into sepsis, which is simply those factors with the presumed infectious etiology, severe sepsis, which is sepsis associated with an end organ dysfunction. So either confusion, a weak heart that results in a very low blood pressure, kidney dysfunction, bowel dysfunction, or cellular breakdown, things that would cause a blood lactate to be elevated, things that would cause your cell counts, either white blood cell counts or red blood cell counts, to be depressed or for you to have a bleeding problem. So what is the mortality of severe sepsis and septic shock? Sure. So the other marker is septic shock, and that's sepsis associated with very low blood pressures, and most people utilize Roger Bone's dictum, which is a systolic blood pressure less than 90 millimeters of mercury. So when you then talk about what's the outcome, the outcome hasn't really changed dramatically over the last 50 years until just recently in the last two years. And so that outcome is for severe sepsis, typically about 30% mortality. When we start reaching into septic shock, those people with severe sepsis and then very low blood pressures, the mortality escalates to 40 percent plus. And so it is a very mortal disease, and it remains so, I mean, less so in the recent past few years with the advent of things like early goal-directed therapy and far better science and far better clinical practice for the treatment of sepsis. So before we get down to some of the specifics, but what do we know about sepsis today that we didn't know 20 years ago? What's some of the big changes in our science that in our understanding of the disease? Sure. The, some of the big changes of science for the disease is 
noting that early intervention actually yields better outcomes. And this makes sense to us intuitively, right? We know that there's a golden hour for trauma in which if we impact the patient in that initial 60 minutes, we can change outcomes. We know that there's golden time associated with strokes and the interventions that are needed to reverse the pathophysiology that occurs in strokes. We also know that if we take acute coronary syndromes and bring them to a cath lab early, we have far better results. This is along those lines. So we know that if we use early intervention with antibiotics, we can change outcome in sepsis. We know that if we are early and aggressive with your resuscitation with both fluids and vasopressors, that we can change outcome. We know that in those patients that have sepsis and anemia, that early intervention with blood transfusion, again, offers you a better chance at an improvement in outcome. And so those steps are really critical and have been looked at most recently as changing outcome. Now, these steps before were used once the patient had already made it out of the emergency department and into the ICU for, you know, 12 to 24 hours, and then these steps, you know, were really addressed. When they're addressed late, they really aren't linked to improved outcomes. However, if you look at early intervention, the initial six hours of presentation of those patients in either the emergency department setting or in the critical care setting, these outcomes are real and different than before. How did we learn this? How did we learn that early goal-directed therapy is important? What studies were done? You know, the, the, the main study that was done is a New England Journal study done by Emmanuel Rivers. And many people consider him a giant in the field of both critical care and emergency medicine. He practices both. And his initial work called Early Goal-Directed Therapy is really the work that has changed our thought process in regards to goal-directed therapy and whether it makes a difference. As I quoted to you before, goal-directed therapy has really been a wash once it's done late. But the concept of doing this goal-directed therapy in an acute time frame, much like the golden hour of trauma, much like the golden hours of both coronary ischemia and cerebral ischemia, when you roll it into a sepsis picture, that early intervention in the initial six hours is linked to improvement in outcomes. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. Peter W. from Louisiana State University Health Science Center, and we're discussing surviving sepsis, improving mortality with new therapies. How do you teach sepsis management and make it simple for the non-intensivist? You know, that's a challenge and a a lifelong goal for me at the medical center with LSU. And, And the concepts are very difficult, but the way to break it down easily, the way I've kind of used it, is I use a mnemonic, and I call it a DAM mnemonic. And DAM being D-A-H-A-M, kind of a southern drawl to it, if you will, a DAM mnemonic. And the concept being that D is the diagnosis is suspected early. So the consideration of the diagnosis. So in those patients who present with systemic inflammatory response syndrome, which is SIRS syndrome, that we consider that. Those people with aberrations in pulse and those people with elevated respiratory rates and those people with temperatures that are either very low or very high and in those people with either low white blood cell counts or elevated white blood cell counts that we consider the diagnosis of sepsis in those patients. 
So if early diagnosis is, is considered and you've got sepsis in your differential diagnosis, then we would advocate early institution of antibiotics, certainly within an hour of the consideration of the diagnosis of sepsis. We think that early intervention with appropriate antibiotics will actually change outcomes. And so that's the D, diagnosis expected, the first A, early intervention with antibiotics, and then the H is actually hemodynamic support. And the hemodynamic support is the concept that we would like a full tank. And the way that we're measuring, that we advocate measuring a full tank, is to have a central venous line placed, ideally in either the IJ position or subclavian position, again, in the superior vena cava, to go ahead and measure a couple of different things. One is the central venous pressure, and the goal being a CVP of 8 to 12 would be millimeters of mercury would be our goal. Once we have attained that, that would be our goal status for the patient in regards to assessing a full tank. Now, this is debatable, and the science behind this is not actually robust, but the practice habit and the surviving sepsis campaign supports a CVP in 8 to 12. And in those patients who are on mechanical ventilation, we actually advocate maybe 12 to 14, even higher central venous pressures. Tell us some more about the surviving sepsis campaign. Sure. Well, the surviving sepsis campaign has really embraced Manny Rivers' early goal-directed therapy and in promoting early intervention of emergency medicine clinicians in impacting the outcome of septic patients. Initially, first, as I said, with the mnemonic, diagnosing early, giving early institution of antibiotics, addressing hemodynamics early, not just CVP, but maintaining mean arterial blood pressures, 65 millimeters of mercury and greater in those cases. And then in those cases, measuring, if you would, serum lactate, as well as a central venous oxygenation saturation. So sampling from the distal portion of the central venous catheter, a saturation, and maintaining saturations greater than 70%. In those patients that have saturations less than 70%, the mindset is to initiate vasoactive agents, in particular a vasopressor dobutamine. And the concept there is to improve cardiac output in those patients with SCVO2s less than 70%. Again, a portion of the goal-directed therapy. In those patients that have hemoglobins and hematocrits less than 10 and 30, the concept is to transfuse them with packed red blood cells to an ideal H&H of 10 and 30 in those patients that have SCVO2s less than 70%. So if I have an SCVO2 that's 70% or greater, I don't reach for dobutamine and I don't reach for blood transfusions. However, if my SCVO2 is less than 70, I would reach for dobutamine and have a consideration for transfusion of packed red blood cells in those patients that were anemic with an H&H less than 10 and 30. As we go further with that management in the septic patient, we also consider should we intubate these patients and should we control their airway. And for those people who are requiring either vasopressors to maintain a mean arterial blood pressure greater than or equal to 65 or dobutamine to drive the cardiac output to maintain an SCVO2 greater than 70%, those people should be expectantly intubated so that we can control that airway and direct that cardiac output away from the muscles of respiration and toward other vital organs such as the brain, such as the heart, such as the kidney and the liver. So if you're an intensivist, this should be your bread and butter. But if you're a non-intensivist, Maybe you're not recognizing sepsis. Why is it commonly missed in the ER or in the hospital? Well, that's a great question. And when we talk about common misses for sepsis, there are many mimickers for it. So things like 
If we think this is a pulmonary embolus, then we would expect what? Your heart rate to be high. We would expect your respiratory rate to be high as well. And you might even be hypotensive. Now, if that was your working diagnosis, and then suddenly you come back with a CAT scan or other studies that showed there was no venothromboembolism, then there was a delay in as much as two to three hours while we're chasing an alternative diagnosis and not considering sepsis. So we wind up missing, not considering the diagnosis, not instituting antibiotics early, not instituting the appropriate measures of early goal-directed therapy, or, you know, as I coined to you, the damn mnemonic. We're not chasing those hemodynamic measures. We're not transfusing blood. We're not aggressively intubating these people, controlling their airways. And then the last component of the damn mnemonic is the M, standing for metabolic measures, different things that we look at, whether we're talking about a tight glycemic control, whether it's a consideration for steroids, or whether it's a consideration for other measures such as activated protein C, what's commonly known as Zygris, and, you know, those other metabolic considerations in those patients who are septic. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. Our thanks today goes to Dr. Peter W., who's been our guest. We've been discussing surviving sepsis, improving mortality with early diagnosis and treatment. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-639-6157. That's 888-639-6157. Thank you for listening.